All right, we're hot again. All right, excellent. Just making sure I've got all the pieces we need in place. Good morning, good morning. Sunbeams are shining through. Good morning, good morning to you. You're going to use that for the cold open, aren't you? I probably am. Oh, my. People with pitchforks at our door. Welcome to the Play Ed Podcast, where we explore cultivating connections through play. Hello and welcome to the Play Ed Podcast. I'm your host, Laura. And I'm Chris. And we are here to explore cultivating connections through play. So before we dive into the main show, a couple of uh, bits of business to square away. First of all, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a, a review and rate us. It does help people find us more easily. And in fact, I actually heard the other day from a friend, hey, found your podcast, so it's working. Thank you everyone who has so far left us one. Also, I wanted to give a shout out to Melly Gets Creative on Instagram. She left us a very kind review and noted that after listening to episode nine of the show, she and her daughter picked up a Mancala game at Half Price Books. And unfortunately, it was missing some pieces, but she was able to use some wooden craft buttons to replace that. That's a very creative idea. And that's actually something we do. We keep a tin of lost... uh, Orphaned game pieces. The orphan game piece tin. And it's a really good idea to have on hand because you never know when your game is going to be missing a meeple. And occasionally when you find a game that's just awful to play, harvest the pieces before you toss the rest of the stuff that isn't reusable. Yes, that does happen. Also, I had a bit of a news segment this week. Okay, we'll get a real teletype sounding machine sound effect soon. Yes, we should. So, uh, there was an article in the Atlantic. I'll leave a note. Um, a, link in the show notes. Link in the show notes. Um Candyland was invented for polio wards. So Wow. Yes, so I've mentioned before Candyland is not my favorite game, but it's sometimes fascinating to discover what is the background behind why a game was invented. And this one was invented by a school teacher who was watching the children in the polio wards who were so constricted. Um sometimes just by the quarantine and sometimes by the actual physical reality of the disease, um, the, the iron lung, which would keep you pretty much immobile most of the day so that you could, you could keep breathing. and It breathed for you. Yes. And the game gave the fantasy of unrestricted movement. And so while from the perspective of a game that you grow out of, because there's really not much to it once you discover it's all luck, um... For younger children, that that ability to move, to not be restricted, and the recognition that for a game, just being able to have autonomy that you may not have in your regular life is in itself a huge element. So I was fascinated. It's a great article to read, um, and we will leave a link for you all. So onward to today's main topic. Oh, we have a topic? We do have a topic. We have a topic? Yes. We have a topic? Yes, we do. Wow. We have a topic. Now we're a real show. (laughs) 
Indeed we do. Um, so I noticed that back to school and back to homeschool were trending tags this week. Oh my word. It's, it's yeah, it's impossible to miss. Yeah, it's tax-free weekend here. So they, they, it's the whole, everyone goes shopping at the same time because you won't pay a sales tax right now. Um, as everyone goes forth and buys their pencils and book bags and things. We homeschool, so the book bags aren't quite so necessary, but... I just found an orphaned game piece. I need to rescue it after the show. Yes, you do. (laughs) Sorry. Squirrel! (laughs) Point. Anyway, (laughs) we do do some planning for school, even if we sound a little scatterbrained. Um... And right, and we thought it would be a great idea since this year we are doing uh, Roman history for our area of um, concentration. Concentration to go a little into how we actually do curriculum planning, particularly how we look at integrating games into our homeschool curriculum. Because it's not all fun and games around here, at least on the planning side. Now, you have to do a little bit of preparation. In fact, that's our um, first principle is that preparation is the key to making it in uh, effective. You can't pass on what you haven't received. So for a starting point, we always begin with what are we trying to teach? And So just, just to elaborate a little, okay. this isn't the only thing we'll be teaching, but we're going to focus on how we're using games to either primarily teach or supplementarily teach. Wow, that's a tongue twister. Say that three times fast. No, no, let's just not. Um, How we use games to either primarily or supplementarily teach, uh, in this case, Roman history, which is going to be our focus, from the foundation of the Republic uh, to the collapse of the Western Empire in the 400s A.D., um, uh, or um, C.E., for those of you who prefer the modern academic notation, which is... Yeah, well, that that's a whole that that that's a whole other topic. Anyway, um, so but there there we will we will have other shows where we would discuss kind of the planning we go through for um, uh, more sciencey themed games or more math themed games, um, uh, language learning games. So. This is not meant to be an exhaustive exploration of our planning process for our homeschool or of how to do that, but we're hoping to give you, our listeners, some insight into kind of what's the process we go through, how do we pick the games that we decide, all right, we're going to make sure that, you know, by the end of the year, the kids at least know how to play most of these, they're familiar, we've dusted, we've dusted off the ones that have been sitting on the shelf for a while, um, and that, and how do we assess or evaluate a given game to say, you know, this is a lot of fun and it's a great game, but we don't necessarily need to have it as part of the school program, uh, versus no, this is one that really needs to go in. Um, and you know, how do you determine what's age appropriate and so forth? Mm-hmm. So starting with uh, our, our process, we've already determined this year is Roman history. We've got a, about a four-year cycle that we typically go through um, with our history studies where we begin with the very ancient world with Egypt and then Greece. then we Mesopotamia. Move, mm-hmm, move on to Rome, then the uh, Middle Ages, and then the modern world. Um, and so with this year being Rome, we said, okay, let's start 
with what we have, which is the best beginning place. Because if you have it, there's a much higher chance that you already know how to play it. Right. And that definitely cuts down on the lead time that you have to have before you can actually implement the game. So the first thing we began doing is we actually started yesterday with a list of what games do we already have in our house that could work thematically around Rome. And the thing about Rome is that you have to take into account with anything of history, there's lots of different areas of study. Yeah. There is the actual geography of the places that you're studying. There is time period and historical, because some games are historical simulations where they go through different events. There's political simulations where it's learning about the political arrangements. And Rome had two major eras, the Republic and the Empire, with different ways in which the society was organized, and games can simulate those. You've got the major battles that they fought as their uh, territories expanded. Um, you have which, which it's important to go into the why of those battles, as, in, in, as well as the the what happened, who who the combatants were. Um, Rome's battles, in particular. Um, are, are fascinating because so many of them started as essentially defensive actions or what we would now call police actions. Mm-hmm. And they kind of woke up to find themselves with an empire, um, practically speaking, uh, nearly 200 years before the Republic itself imploded uh, and the Principate and later the the Imperium emerged. Mm-hmm. So being able to, to tangibly illustrate some of that is at the heart of why we would use games as opposed to just read through a textbook or watch some videos all of which we will also do Mm -hmm. and we'll in the in our section talking about letting the game teach talk about how we use uh, games as a complementary or enrichment activity that helps to reinforce or waken us up to the fact waken our kids up to this the idea that this is interesting things to learn about, that it's it's not dull. I was talking to one of my son's friends a couple of years ago, and he was in high school at the time. And we, we were in a conversation with some older folks, um, uh, my peers and, and, and some gentlemen somewhat older than I am. Um, and he was politely listening in and enjoying the conversation. And we got to talking about certain events in Roman history, and I was kind of laying out some context, and I forget all of the details, but I remember the conversation, and he kind of picked up his cup of coffee and took a sip, and he said, wow, wow, that's completely different from what we got in school. I was like, what did you learn in school about Roman history? He's like, well, there were some fat, rich guys who just kind of sat around and drank all the time, and then there were some, like, poor, skinny guys and they did all the work, and life sucked. Like, that was your exposure to the most dominant cultural force for the better part of 1,500 years. They were? Yeah, man. All right, we'll talk. So <laughs> it was like, all right, if if your high school or college education in ancient Rome, um, if that was about as far as, as, far as it got, or... Um, if that's about all you remember, that's cool. Hopefully this uh, this today's episode will reawaken some memories and give you some some uh, entry points to uh, go deeper in and learn about this very, very fascinating culture that is continuing to have impact on society today. 
And the last area of, you know, games that we would look at were ones that we did would go into things like Roman culture. Um, and we have several that we happen to have on hand that we can have as a starting point. But we obviously don't own every game in the world. We only have so many square feet in our house. And some of it has to be, you know, kept for beds and uh, food preparation. So, if you play games, and we don't mention one, and you have a game that you really like, let us know, and we can look to get it and explore it, and maybe even offer uh, a feature episode on it. Another note before we go much further, wow, there's so much setup in this episode. It I, is, but it's okay. Um, we, we will be doing deeper dives on, on most of the games we mention in today's show, so today's kind of like a... I don't know, 75,000 foot fly overview, like, oh, there's the Rocky Mountains. Is that the Rocky Mountains? Well, yeah, the little blue line at the, at the horizon. Oh, you know, it's that kind of level detail. We're not doing deep dives on a specific game uh, like we've done in some recent episodes. So um, I think the other big thing to remember is timing. Yeah. Um, that if you've got several games you want to play, you need to make the time to get a handle on them. Then you need to make a time to introduce them, and you have to plan to play several of them repeatedly before even the basic mechanics are up to speed. And particularly if you're looking at a game that you haven't previously played, recognizing that you can't go in with that one on day one, you're going to have to make the time to learn it first before you go in to play. Um, and so as we were going over the show, I was looking and saying, wow, I've got a big gap in the art and architecture area. So I started a Google search and I found two or three games that had possible um, applicability. I'm not certain yet whether any of them are ones that I want to purchase, but I considered them as ones that might offer something in that area. Um, But if I got those, I would have to give myself at least a month's lead time before I would dive in with any of them because I would need to spend the time with reading through the rules and probably looking for some online gameplay um, reviews. Yeah, I mean, new new games are always a time commitment. So, um, you know... uh, Pick cautiously, um, but but don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. Um, to that end, let's kind of move into how do we evaluate? How do we determine what a game is going to teach and why it should be included or excluded, uh, at least starting with the, the games we have? Do we want to tell our audience what games we're going to be talking about today, at least in brief? Well, I've got a list here, and I was thinking that the simplest way to go through is look and say, as we went through the games, we'd say, okay, what would this game, how would this game contribute? Um, So the first are uh, a pair of games that we discovered through one of the gaming conventions you attend. Oh, no, I knew about them long ago. Yes, but you played them. Yes, I started playing them and found out how to get uh, the pieces I needed to play them. Um, Avalon Hill, which we mentioned in connection with, um, Gladiator, with, yeah, with Civilization and Advanced Civilization, uh, a couple of episodes back. Um, Avalon Hill in the 1970s and 80s also put out a pair of wonderful games called Gladiator, uh, which simulates gladiator combat, although they tend more towards the Hollywood style than the historically realistic. Uh, think of it as kind of the Rome Total War take 
uh, on on history, uh, or even some of the more sensational History Channel versions. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of blood and death in the sands of the Colosseum. Um, and then also Circus Maximus, which is, as one might infer, if you've jogged around the track in Rome, um, the um, it's a chariot racing game. And Circus Maximus I really like because you can, even more so than Gladiator, play it in a historically um, uh, relevant uh, manner. Um, or you can get, you know, uh, large numbers of people and you can just run chariot races. And um, uh, again, Circus Maximus was inspired by Ben-Hur as much as it was by historical chariot racing. Um, but chariot racing in the ancient world was huge. Like, take take the biggest sports and entertainment franchise you can think of, and chariot racing in the ancient world was bigger. Yes. It, it, it was NASCAR and NFL combined in terms of the fan base, how passionate they were. Um, well, in international soccer. Yeah. I mean, like the whole Roman world. Like, it, it, I mean, it's it, it's really fascinating when you start looking at some of the academic research around uh, chariot racing and gladiatorial competitions. Uh, gladiatorial competitions are fascinating in that in the very early uh, Etruscan period and the early Republic, um, the, the, the general academic consensus today is that gladiator fights were to the death as a form of kind of ritualized human sacrifice to honor the dead. By the middle to late Republic, the period most people might kind of know about from, say, the Punic Wars to the fall of the Republic, um, uh, around 30 BC, um, the there there's a there's a movement away from um uh combat to the death because whoever was paying for the competition whomever was paying for the competition had to um indemnify the owner of the slaves who were fighting and people would voluntarily sell themselves into slavery to become gladiators or um to race chariots um, it's, uh, I mean, students in Greece, Greeks, uh, 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 Greeks in places like Athens and Thebes would sell themselves into slavery during the Roman period in order to pay for their education. That's how they afforded their, their good educations in the hopes that they could then go and teach wealthy Roman citizens children and become Roman citizens once they were emancipated. Yes, um, essentially a, a, an early form of student loan. So, you know, w- without going into too much detail, Gladiator and Circus Maximus, both games that I'm very familiar with playing and running and are, that are a lot of fun, they cover certain essential cultural elements within the Roman world. Um, Circus Maximus in particular helps reinforce some... Um, uh, it's very strong arithmetic skills and um, uh, comparative uh, advantages um, that you can set some things high, but that forces other numbers to be low. And you have to figure out kind of how to balance, um, you know, the speed versus the stamina of your horses, mm-hmm. um, how heavy your chariot is, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and, and the play is fun. I mean, if you take a turn too fast and your chariot wipes out, then you've got that Ben-Hur thing where you got the guy being dragged by the reins and chariots jumping over people and, you know. Oh, it's an exciting game. And, and, and when we really got to see it play, like you said, it was at a convention. And 
that became despite the fact that it was a role-playing convention this this board game was one of the highlights of the thing they had a a a large format version that you could have that was you know with little miniature chariots that they'd had made for it yeah and it was very exciting and you get into understanding why it was such an exciting event to watch in real life and so as a dive into roman culture it's an excellent way to dig into what were these people like? What was that world like? Um, and to understand a lot of that, that things like culture do drive the events. Um, the next game we have not played yet because it only just got published. Called Ancient Civilizations of the Inner Sea by GMT Games. I have been waiting for this one since it was announced. Um, looks, looks like it'll be really good. That one's going to take some time, uh, for us to learn how to play and get to a point where we can teach the kids. So we may chronicle that in a series of episodes to come. Uh, um, almost certainly. And I'm not really whole, sure on this whole unboxing video trend on YouTube, but I may go ahead and do an unboxing video when that one arrives in the mail. Cause I'm very excited about this thing. Well, I think it's supposed to arrive this week. So excellent. Um, it's possible at the time this podcast gets published and you, our listeners, are listening to it, we may have received that game. So it looks like it's a worthy successor, whether that was intended or not by the developers, uh, to the old Avalon Hills Advanced Civilization, but it has some very different gameplay elements. And, um, yeah, looks really, really good. I've seen the, the shots of the board and playing pieces. I've read some of the after-action reports. But from a standpoint of what it teaches, this is definitely more of a laying the broad general framework of the world of the Mediterranean and understanding that Rome doesn't exist in a vacuum. Right. That, uh, and in fact, one of the most important bits about history is discovering all of these bits of parallel events occurring that you can start asking that while Alexander was running around Asia, what was happening in Rome? And you can... Go and look and say, oh, well, about that time, this was what was happening. Um, they were having wars with their local neighbors. But only another generation on, you've got the... They're in conflict with the Phoenicians based out of Carthage, um, who were becoming an independent power because the, the Phoenician settlements like Tyre and Sidon on the Levant, the Levantine shore, were now under the control of the Seleucid kings. Yes. Uh, in the wake of Alexander's conquest and the, the overrun of the Persian Empire. And you, you, you can't talk about the one without the other. And so a game like ACIS helps you to remember that when you're learning Roman history, Roman history involves a lot more than just the Italian peninsula. Yeah. And helps to bring in what are the other players as that empire grows. Um, we have a few more games. Uh, Pax Romana. You probably remember more about that one than I so do. So Pax Romana is a, um, a really, really nice, very detailed game by GMT. Um, there was a, a kind of sequel game they published called Genesis that takes sort of the, the ancient Middle Eastern Bronze Age. Uses uh, similar mechanics. Uh, but it allows you to... to, to kind of play through a lot of the major events and stresses that helped to build what became the Roman Empire and established what Augustus called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Um, it can be played 
um, as a kind of historical simulation, and it can also be played once the players know what they're doing, uh, very competitively in a kind of uh, historical what if, alter the actual events kind of way. So it. Um, Which other ones have we got on there that would follow that kind of thing? Would um, uh, Imperium Romanum or Republic of Rome follow also into that same general? Uh, yeah, as would Falling Sky with the Ariovistus expansion. That one I will note in particular that Falling Sky. Um, is one that is a simulation of Caesar's Gallic Wars. Right, modeled as a counterinsurgency campaign. It's part of GMT's uh, Coin or Coin series, um, which is a whole series of games they develop that model various counterinsurgency campaigns, um, where you've got essentially some kind of regular forces versus some kind of guerrilla warfare, and the, the two factions are imbalanced. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that one in particular, one, like a lot of GMT games, they tend to definitely skew towards the older end. So high school and college age students. Um, so if you're working with older students and doing more in-depth study, and that's the thing to keep in mind, uh, you you want to definitely keep in mind with, with some of these games, that some of them are going to definitely be more of that high school level of detail rather than that elementary middle level of detail. But with Falling Sky and Ariovistus, the other thing that crossed my mind is that if you're doing something like actually reading through Caesar's Gallic Wars... In, in translation or in the primary text. Um, that becomes an opportunity to really dig into the the combat that he's describing, the, the, the different um, events um, during that period. As with any game, there is an abstraction, so several of the Gallic factions that he talks about are are amalgamated into a single Gallic faction. The, the, there's, a, there's a Germanic faction. Um, but it, it really plays very, very well. Uh, and there's lots of help uh, online to support learning to play it. That um, is one we were actually intending to play this year, though. Uh, and that's because we do have a high schooler. And he has been studying Latin for several years and is getting to the point where studying Caesar... Um, unadapted um, is becoming a possibility. Um, so we probably will actually be digging into that one since we're at about that stage, um, both in terms of development and um, detail. He's also going to be in a very um, much more granular level um, course in Roman history. Yeah, well, I know I know Gal some of Gallic Wars is part of his uh, syllabus and translation for one of his classes, uh, and I, I don't know if how much Gallic War he'll cover in his actual Latin lit class, but he'll be reading a lot of Livy mm -hmm. um, uh, and some Virgil in that one. So, um, and again, um, it's it's not necessarily all stick with historical facts. It's you you want to make sure that the games you're picking have some kind of resonance and relationship. You want to make sure that they are going to be interesting mm -hmm. and that they're going to help um, build those skills, but also just reinforce what's being taught. Because it's very easy to read something, parrot something back and forget it, um, especially if you're what's normally called a bright child. Um, but it's a lot harder to forget it when, you know, you've... You've seen those opportunities open up or you felt those pressures because the way the game played out and you see it come to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, on the subject of battles, I, I can't recommend uh, GMT Games Command and Colors Ancients highly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole series of the Ancients gives you a couple of thousand years of ancient warfare um, to, to play with. But to be able to go kind of key battle to key battle um, with a relatively simple block uh, setup, um, to be able to lay out some some suggestive terrain, um, and uh, to be able to, within an hour or two, play through a scenario or several scenarios or the same scenario several times... Um, with enough randomness that the outcome is not predetermined, no matter how the the sides start out, mm-hmm. um, it, absolutely invaluable to making things like Lake Regilius or Trasimene or um, the Caudine Forks, significant battles in Roman history, uh, into more than just names and dates that you might try and remember. Yes, and that one I will note... Um... I am fairly sure our 12-year-old has been able to play that one. So that one's probably playable from about middle school on with good instruction. A lot of these are playable from middle school on with good instruction. Even Falling Sky would fall into that. But you would definitely need good instruction there. Um, Um, But what I would particularly note, and it's because I recognize that with history, you've got history people tend to fall into two camps. You've got the sort of battles and... Um, Plutarch's Lives biography kind of people. And then you've got the um, hi- culture and and lit kind of people. You've got that sort of hard and soft is the, is the, the big broad categories. I want to make a huge recommendation for the importance of learning battles because they're... Do, they don't interest you at all. Actually, that's not quite true. <laughs> um It's more the understanding, the context of the battles, that when you play the battle in full, you start asking questions of, well, why on earth was it here in the first place? Why did a battle occur in this place? And that's when you get into questions of, well, who were the players? Why were the Carthaginians in Italy to begin with? Um, What was the outcome of this for the overall conflict? And so it's it's a starting point to get into this is interesting and it wasn't a given that one or the other side was going to win. And now you get to go into, okay, well, what was the whole point of this war? And it's a question of, well, this one started because some of their neighbors asked for help dealing with a common enemy, or this one started because there was colonization of the lower half of the peninsula by this group. And they were trying to expand and that this point was the most important point because it was the natural border point or controlling this area meant control of a particular resource. And that gets into starting to understand the nature of the conflicts and then the overall impact of what does it mean now that Rome has the whole island, the whole peninsula, and Sicily. Right. And so those battles are a good starting point for understanding the conflicts that occur that drive the expansion of Rome from a city-state to a global empire. To a global empire. So pulling back a little, because um, I think we're getting lost in the weeds of some of these games. Oh yeah. Um, this was supposed to be like a quick list of 
what we're thinking of doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a game recently put out by the Institute for Excellence in Writing, IEW, whose writing curricula we are a huge fan of and have used very successfully with several of our children. Um, They recently started putting out a card game series called Outmatched. Mm -hmm. Um, And Outmatched is fun. There are these little card decks, and you're basically trying to match um, factoids to prompts, um, either like a term to its definition or a date to its significant event. Um, The the decks are kind of divided up. There's like a... um, um, there's, there's an ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, I know that there's one for um, Egypt. In- there's one. Uh, there's uh, one for like Republican Rome and one for Imperial Rome. And they all they all come in like a single set. So like you buy the box, you get all the card decks for the ancient world. They just released this year um, a medieval one that comes with a similar set of decks mm-hmm. uh, broken up on the medieval. I presume they're working on like an early modern or modern. Um, that, that, uh, maybe a Renaissance themed one that does seem to be how these things get released by a lot of these companies. But, uh, this is one that, that even the younger ones can play. A lot of the events are kind of icon driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, you're working on a very, very basic fact association level. And it's a very important part to recognize that with your younger students, you're not going to be able to d- dive anywhere near as deep into the history What you're trying to do at that point is establish frameworks, major key characters and dates and events that you can hang your knowledge of history on. Those those important points that allow you to remember, okay, this was when Rome went from republic to empire. Uh, Understanding really important players like Gaius Julius Caesar. It's a good supplement if you're using things like Story of the World or Child's History of the World or... um... Uh, there's another one might be, uh, might be story of civilization or something like that. Yeah. Um, that, that, that sort of, um, call it, call it second or third grade to fourth or fifth grade where you're just looking at kind of the broad strokes history, broad strokes history. You're mostly focused on the, the stories from history rather than the driving forces. And you want something that's fast playing. I'll say this for outmatched. We can play. Even even with a full table of of everybody, we can play really really fast. Multiple games, even in a twenty or thirty minute period of time. Um, On initial playthroughs, it typically rewards the person who already has the most history. But once people start to remember and keep track of all the facts, and there is an answer key available. It's not an obvious answer key, but there is an answer key available with instructions on how to use it to validate. Once everyone become, once everyone starts to memorize them, uh, and and its and its goal is is fact memorization. Um, once everyone starts to memorize it so that they're on a more even playing field, it's how quickly can you remember and then pull out so that you can kind of like quiz bowl was like yeah. i remember playing quiz bowl in school where you know you'd get a factoid and you had to buzz in if you buzzed in first you can answer yeah um i mean jeopardy works the same way if if mm-hmm. you're not familiar with quiz bowl where um you know the 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 challenge is selected and the answer given, and then you have to respond in the form of a question. And so that was definitely, if you're sort of moving from sort of the fact level, um, outmatched is fantastic. A um, couple more that we've got on here. What was Palatinus? Was Palatinus it? is is a... Um, I know it's a card-driven game. 
It is card driven. Um, well, I don't even remember if it's card driven. It's chit. It's it's mostly just chits. It's chit placement um, on a on a small hex grid. You each of the um, each of the players is taking the role of like an early founder of these villages on the Tiber and trying to expand to create territory to create Rome. Mm-hmm. So the idea is you're 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 surrounding the Palatine Hill. You're on the other hills surrounding it. Mm-hmm. Um, very very early, you've got like really simple soldiers. You've got really simple farmers, um, and through strategic placement, you can take over territory. Um, in, in, it can be fun. It can also be very frustrating. Um, but if you want to talk about that kind of very early legendary period of Roman history, um, uh, the time of Romulus and Remus, the time of the first Kings, when this village is emerging into what will become a power, but it's by no means certain that that Mm -hmm. will happen. Um, Palatinus can be a fun little game. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's portable. It's very quick to play. I remember it being very inexpensive, but I might have also gotten it on clearance. Yes. Um, we've got a couple more that I think would fall under sort of culture. We have a game called By Jove, uh, which is... Long out of print. Long out of print, so it's definitely a have to hunt it down on the uh, secondary market. It was issued by Aristo Play, who is still, as far as I can tell, in business and still making edutainment board games and um, manipulative toys for children. Um, fascinating stuff. And By Jove basically takes a crack at Greco-Roman um, mythology the stories of heroes, the stories of the gods, um, drawing on Hesiod's Theogony and the Works and Days, drawing on um, the Homeric hymns and what we learn from the poets and the playwrights of Greece, but also drawing on the the Roman take on those things. And that's uh, it. Definitely is more of a sort of Greco-Roman hybrid. Hybrid. Um, you could you could describe it as Hellenistic mm-hmm. uh, in, in the way that 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 kind of. Uh, all of the material and social culture of the, that come out of the the Macedonian conquest um, sort of m- metastasizes into what we commonly call Hellenistic culture. Yes, uh, I will have to see if we can still find it. But Roman dice games, because early Roman dice playing wasn't actually made with cute little cubes. It was was it pigs knuckles? Pigs knuckles. Um, and years ago, we found a, it was a website, um, I'm, I'm not sure if they're still in business, but they they made out of resin simulated pig's knuckles. Along and you could with- buy a set, and it came with a card that explained some Roman dice games, and it explained some like um, early medieval uh, mm-hmm. European dice games that were all played with pig's knuckles. Um, and this is a great, if, if we, I really hope we can find it and put a link in the show notes, but if you can get a hold of this and you, you've, you've got an academic who's really into like material culture of the Roman world, this is a great place to start because this is something a lot of Romans did across all social strata. It's not just the, the battles and, um, you know, deeds of, of great figures kind of stuff. There's, 
This is right in what was going on in every tavern, every household, every slave's quarters across the Roman world for the better part of 1,500 years. And it helps to get an understanding of Roman worldview and the view that the the ideas of luck and fortune played into their their view of life. Um, Because when you're studying history, you're trying to get a handle on the people and why they make the choices they do and... When you have a belief that there's a large part of life governed by luck, uh, that does change how you do things. So, there's other games that I said, I like I noticed, I noticed we had a gap in sort of the art and architecture area. Uh, there's a couple I'll link in the show notes that I had found that might be possibilities on that. That we have not played, but we, are interested in getting copies of. Um, but I also had the idea that uh, with art and architecture, there is a um, uh, curriculum called Child Size Masterpieces uh, that I will probably put together a Roman architecture variant on. Um, we are going to definitely do an in-depth version of that in the show because it uses matching games as the foundation for learning uh, art history and art appreciation. Um and that's probably what I would do with art and architecture to remember, you know, Ionic versus Doric columns versus Corinthian, uh, Corinthian being the, the Roman contribution to architecture. Um, but that gives you a, an idea of, you know, there's a huge amount of subject area to cover and lots of games that will dive into different parts of that. Um, so keeping it in the fun zone, the first thing that I can think of is that's a lot of games. Yeah. Um, pick one. Pick one. Um, you know, for us, it's going to be one at a time. So the kids already know how to play Circus Maximus fairly well. They're they're not as familiar with Gladiator because I haven't pulled it out as often. Um, ACIS is going to be new to all of us. Um, and some of the others are are more a question of whether whether or not it's age appropriate, and it's very easy to get overwhelmed, especially with everything else going on. So what we will tend to do is I'll pick you know one of these games, and if it's one we already know, yeah, we can pull it out and play it over a weekend. If it's if it's one we're learning, we'll set up a table in you know some nook we excavate uh, amidst the the clutter of the house. And we'll leave it set up, and we'll play it slowly over the course of a few weeks or a month. We'll play several sessions um, and just try and get familiar with the mechanics before we start playing for real. And then, so the important thing is always keeping in mind that choosing games that are appropriate to the age level that you're trying to teach um, so that it is fun, so that it doesn't end up incredibly frustrating um also keep in mind number of players some games are best with one to two some are best with like six to eight um i recall republic of rome actually plays best there is a whole solitaire or a two-player system included with the rules at least in the original game there was a reissue a few years ago uh and i presume it had that as well but um, that's one that's definitely like older teens kind of a thing, and it definitely pay, plays better with more people um, because it's got that diplomatic negotiation component that makes games like Diplomacy and Civilization, which we've previously mentioned, 
work really well. And we will be doing in-depth reviews of several of these that will help you determine, is this a game that you'd like to incorporate? Because if you're dealing with mostly older students, some of these are going to be better. If you've got mostly littles, there's uh, different ones that are going to be your go-to games for having a fun and engaging Roman year. Outmatched by Jove, if you can can get a hold of it, are, are both really, really good um, on the, the, the younger end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other point I would have for keeping it in the fun zone, and this is definitely from the parental end, there is a bit of wisdom from the military. <laughs> no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And before you jump to conclusions, I want to make it clear that your enemy here is time. Not your children. Yes. Um, you have other demands on your time. Um, things are going to come up. People are going to get sick in February. Oh, no, that would never happen. That would never happen. Holidays and in-law visits and, um, you know, swim meets and band competitions. And we've got we've got one of the folks in, in our regular um, D&D group who's not really going to be able to make it for the next several months because... Marching ba- band. Marching band. Um, and, you know... Uh, so that's fine. You're going to, your families will have those stresses too. Yes. Um, if your kids are in martial arts or swimming or sports or anything, um, you're, you're, you're going to have to choose your games and pick your play times accordingly. And you need to give yourself grace because it is always easy in the planning stage of the year to say, oh, there is so much that I want to do. And then there comes a point about three months in where you look and you assess and it's like, I did about a third of what I was intending to. Do not beat yourself up. If you're doing some of this, you are already making the point to try to define something that's going to be a more engaging and fuller experience of this than you would if you weren't trying. And it's worth noting professional teachers have this stress and this realization. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a single year I went to public schools I went to a university, and in none of those did we ever actually make it through the whole curriculum. Well, the whole syllabus, at least. Yes. Um, you know, and by, by the same token, in my work life, even if I lay out a to-do list, if I get two or three of those items done, mm-hmm. that's great. Um, I try and prioritize the highest three outcomes that I want, and then everything else just, I hope, takes care of itself eventually. Um, so don't beat yourself up. Pick one game. If you're really, really busy and all of these games are new to you, then, you know, I would really recommend Outmatched of everything that we've, we've, it's a good place to start. It can be fun even for the older kids who should know some of this stuff if you've covered it. And if they haven't, it's all new to them. Yes. Um, but it plays fast. It's easy. It's portable. And so it can fit into a very busy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you have if you have more time, then a lot of these other ones become a good one. But don't try to do everything. Right. Um, we aren't even going to end up doing everything. I I guarantee you, half to two thirds of the games we just mentioned probably won't actually see play in the course of this coming six to nine month period of of quote unquote school. We may play a lot more next summer. Yes. But especially when you're also trying to setting aside the fact that there's still all those other areas of study that we that we cover because this is just our history. Um, there's there's other things going on. We watch lecture videos and we we read good books. I was sitting there thinking, 
Eagle of the Ninth. I need to do a Eagle of the Ninth paired up with one of these for one of my uh, book and uh, game Saturday Instagram posts. That's uh, Roman Britain. Yes. Um, and so there's fantastic read-alouds and living books that you can read. And this is part of a whole group of other things that you're doing. And at some point, you just have to trust that if you do some of these and have some good books and spend some time with them, it's going to be enough because the whole point is lifelong learning. Have enough that you discover that the Romans are fascinating and you'll spend a lifetime reading about them the way you'll spend a lifetime reading about any other place that you fall in love with. And you can build those connections through the gameplay. Mm-hmm. Both the connections with history and the connections with each other. Yes. And that's that and having fun is what all this is ultimately all about. Very true. So, I think that's a pretty good place to wrap up for today. Um, it's we... going to be a long episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, we hope you enjoyed today's discussion. All of the games that we mentioned, every single one, this is a long list today, uh, can be found in the show notes. And um, we will be doing in-depth on a lot of these games in subsequent episodes. So please do stay tuned, because if you want to learn more about them, we will be going further in and further up. But now we would love to hear from you. Is there a game that you have played about ancient history, particularly ancient Rome, that we didn't mention today? Please uh, write to us about it. We may feature it on a uh, future show. And in the meantime, you can write to us at playedpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at playedpod or on Facebook at our group playedpodcast. Please tell us your thoughts, and until next time, thanks for listening. Have a good one. Bye. Um, you, you definitely want to completely lost my train of thought there. What was I trying to say about Republic of Rome? Group size. Oh, group size. I'm reminded of that scene in The Midwinter's Tale when Tom freaks out talking about everybody doing backstage videos and bloopers and outtakes and where's the mystery. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's a great movie. Has to be on camera. <laughs> All right. Yeah, maybe we should like start another podcast and just do movie reviews. We could do that. Oh, come on. Tell me that wouldn't be fun. People used to read my blog just for the movie reviews. <laughs> Remember the odor? <laughs> All right. All right. I'll admit it would be hysterical. All right. Something to think about. But only if our fans demand it. All right, let's get the show on the road. Okay. We've got a busy day ahead of us.